0: So in the late uh, 1990s, Philip Yancey wrote a, a lovely little book called What's So Amazing About Grace. How many of you have read that just out of interest? Yeah, good. If you've never read it, I'd really recommend it to you. It's a great little book. It just helping to understand a little bit more about God's grace. And it talks about, as I've put on the screen there, the scandal of grace. Here's what he actually writes. Grace does not Excuse wrong, but it treasures the wrongdoer. True grace is shocking, scandalous. It shakes our conventions with insistence on getting close to evil and touching it with mercy and hope. It forgives the unfaithful spouse, the racist. It loves today's AIDS-ridden addict as much as the tax collector Of Jesus's day. The scandal of grace. Scandal is a word that we hear a lot in our culture today uh, as uh, time and again the media uh, certainly band this uh, uh, word around. They talk about different things being scandalous uh, uh, in society and I've been mulling it over this last uh, week or so as I've been looking again through the parables, where we've spent a bit of time over the last uh, few Sunday evenings. Because, you know, I think true grace is indeed shocking and scandalous. And the parable that we're going to look at this evening demonstrates that really, really well. But I want to give a health warning before we go any further this evening, because I think, in all honesty, uh, most of us here aren't going to really like uh, this parable, because picking up on what we looked at last Sunday evening, it offends our sense of fairness, and we just need to take that on board. Perhaps that's why it seems to be among the most ignored of Jesus's parables. Now, in order to get a proper understanding of this parable, I need to place it in its proper context. So if you're following in your Bibles, there is a pew Bible at the end of each pew, or if you've got a a Bible app on your phone, why don't you open it up? Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. That's not where we're focusing this evening, but this will just help set things in a bit of context for you. Because you'll recall in Matthew chapter 19, the rich young man, rich young ruler, uh, had just refused to follow Jesus because he wasn't uh, willing to give up his material riches And so Jesus uh, had commented on how difficult it was for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that apparently caught the disciples totally off guard. So as he often did, it was left to Peter, do you remember, uh, to speak up, and uh, Peter asked a question on behalf of the entire group. And he said, see, we've left everything and followed you, what then will we have? Basically, the disciples are turning around and they're saying to Jesus, Look, pal, we followed you from the start. We were very faithful to you. You know, we haven't had riches by following you. We've left an awful lot. And when others have turned away from you, you know, we've stuck with you. What is in this for us? And dare I say it, I think most of us in this place tonight have probably asked a similar question from time to time. And I'm going to come back to Jesus' answer to that question uh, towards the end of this evening's teaching. But uh, for now, let's just skip ahead and look at the event that occurs right after the parable Jesus tells. Because it's very important just to see why the parable is being used. So this is what comes before. Now turn on to Matthew chapter 20. And beginning in verse 20, we find the account of the mother uh, of Uh, James and John, and uh, it's a very interesting little section, isn't it? You know it very well, I'm sure, and uh, we find the account of that mother coming. She wants the best for her boys, doesn't she? And she wants Jesus to give uh, her sons a place of prominence in the kingdom. So we read that account today, 2,000 years later, and it occurs to us, because we can see the big picture much better, uh, that blinking act! what a cheeky cow she was. You know, and that, that's the kind of approach we'll have to that. Script. But I want to tell you this, in light of the values of this world, what she's actually asking isn't that un- outlandish. I mean, you want the best for your kids, don't you? Hello? Yeah. You parents? Yeah. I hope you do. We want the best for our kids. And sometimes you've stuck your apron's worth in and tried to make sure that they get the best. And you've argued their corner and, and everything else. I Enlighten the values of, of the values of this world. Then it's not that outlandish what she says. Her sons have been faithful to Jesus. She just wants them to be rewarded for their faithfulness. Now in between the rich young man incident then and this cheeky mother coming to Jesus, you've got this parable. So Jesus' followers are basically asking to be rewarded. Peter's turning around on behalf of the disciples and saying, Hey, we've followed everything. We've left everything to follow you. What's in this for us? And here's this mother saying, My boys were destined to go to Swansea University and they've chucked it all in to follow you, a blinking carpenter, around fishing. What's in it for them? Jesus tells the parable that we're looking at this evening. So, Simona's going to come, and she's going to read for us. We pick up the story. We're going to, the chapter divides in the Bible are rubbish, okay? They weren't there when it was originally written. Come on, Simona. They, they were put in later. So, we're going to pick things up in Matthew, chapter 19, and verse 30, and carry on through to chapter 20, verse 16. Thank you, Simona.
1: But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the labourers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleven hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, This lasts worth only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have burned the bur- borne the burden of the day and the scrunching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I am not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last.
0: Thank you, Simona. Bless you. smooth has been working very hard this weekend. Bless you. And now we are to get you to read tonight as well. Bless you for that. So did you see the, the two little bits about the first will be last and the last will be first? And, and that's what's sort of uh, the two bookends of, of this parable. And, and it's very important that we see that because we're trying to understand the context and why Jesus would use this parable in this way. We need to keep in mind that this parable is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. This parable isn't about business practices, okay? let just remember that. Or, or workers' rights. Um, I've seen it trotted out many times to try and uh, influ- uh, influence certain... Uh, business practices and stuff, but Jesus is describing here how his kingdom operates, and more particularly, I think, how his grace operates. That's what we see here above everything else. You can't lift this parable out of its context and try and use it for some other purpose. So, Come with me back to the text. If you've got your Bibles, keep your Bibles open. It's very important that we follow this through tonight. Now, the situation in Israel at that time wasn't that different from what you might find actually happening in places like Lincolnshire in this day and age, where gangs of migrant workers would often gather on street corners at about four thirty, five 5 o'clock in the morning, looking for somebody to come by in their van to collect them and offer them work for the day in the fields. It's a kind of thing that's very, very common, certainly in, in parts of the, of the country like that, where they need people to go out and harvest the veg. And so that's a big, big thing that, that we see happening. And uh, these guys were no different. They'd meet up each day and hope that one of the landowners in the area would need some help uh, in the vineyards. And uh, they were certainly amongst the poorest classes. They uh, weren't, uh, you know, they, they weren't looked on favorably by people. They thought they were a bit of a pain in the backside. But they counted on being hired because by being hired and by going and doing hard physical work in the fields, in the vineyards, they would at least be able to earn enough to feed their families. And that's all it it was about. So when the landowner comes along and offers the first group of workers a denarius uh, to work a a 12 hour day, they quickly agreed to his terms. A denarius was about the amount that any skilled laborer would expect for a day's work. So that's a good amount of money. He's gonna expect that for an honest day's work. And that, that would be it. The landowner then comes back three hours later and hires another group of workers. And do you notice in the text, if you look carefully, it says, he offers to pay them, verse 4, whatever was right. And having observed the generosity of the landowner earlier, they too quickly agreed to work for the rest of the day, trusting, I'm sure, that the landowner would pay them fairly. Same thing happens again after six hours, and then after nine hours into the 12-hour working day. Finally, an hour before clocking off time, the landowner found some more workers still wanting to be hired. And I want you to notice that these workers, there's no agreement at all concerning their pay in the text, that these men were so desperate to earn whatever they could in order to provide something for their families, they'd stood around all day, there was no work. Here was somebody offering them at least an hour. Well, flip me, I'm gonna take that, are I? Because at least I can do something for my family. They trusted in the generosity of the landowner And so they go to work. Now, also note, the reason that these men are still in the marketplace is not because they're lazy. In fact, they've been persistent enough to hang around, figuring that, well, an hour's work will be better than nothing else. So this is the way Jesus sets up the parable. There's nothing unusual here. It's a story that people in those days would be very used to hearing. It would be something that they would read in the Jerusalem Post. It was something that was going on around them. And it's something that we have seen in some way, shape, or form, as I said, in places like Lincolnshire. You've come across stories like that, haven't you? Yeah, where they go and harvest cabbages and cauliflowers and things like that. So far then, there's nothing really outrageous about this, nothing really scandalous about this at all. We we can see that it makes sense. The landowner has hired whatever workers he needs and he agrees to pay them at the end of the day. By the way, that was the common practice in Palestine in the first century. But the story is going to take a very surprising turn, isn't it? So. We read in verses 8 and 9, when evening comes, the owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. You trade union men and women here. You'd love that, wouldn't you? Just imagine that. Look at it carefully now. Remember, paying the ones who came last first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Wow. They've only been there an hour. And you see them getting a denarius. I wonder what your feelings are going to be at this point. We learn for the first time here as well that the landowner has a foreman. That in itself isn't pretty remarkable. Many landowners had other people who did their fetching for them and stuff. But what is surprising, the landowner... The landowner hadn't used the foreman to go and hire the workers. Do you notice that? It's very interesting that the landowner, in Jesus' story, did the hiring. Didn't get somebody else to do it. He wants somebody else to do the paying, but here, it's very clear, he did the hiring himself. Now, because of the fact that these men were depending on their pay to meet the immediate needs of their families... Jewish law required that these workers were indeed paid at the end of the day. So there's no standing order set up with the county council or anything like that here. You're not going to get your pay on the 20th of the month. And flip me, if it's the 20th of the month on a Sunday, you don't get paid until the Monday. Although we got paid on the Friday, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Anyway... Deuteronomy chapter 24. You know what I'm talking about. That's good. Deuteronomy chapter 24 stipulates very clearly. Look at this. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. Give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you'll be guilty of sin. An honest day's work, an honest day's pay. We get that, don't we? Yeah. Not waiting until the end of the week for a little brown envelope, not waiting for a back's payment to your account on the 20th of the month. You pay him a day's wages for a day's work. But as he begins to pay the workers, the foreman does something very unusual. As I hinted at a moment ago, he pays the last men hired first. And what's shocking is that they received a denarius. The same amount the landowners promised the men who worked the entire twelve-hour day. I wonder, as the boys who had been there twelve hours looked at what was happening, do you think they thought, "Wow, he's paying them a denarius"? We misunderstood, boys. We misunderstood. He's paying them a denarius. Hey, we're going to get twelve times that. Huh? We've got this one in the bag. Not only will we be able to eat tonight. We'll be able to eat for a week. This will be amazing. So, when those hired first men came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. We've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And so here's the scandal, isn't it? Scandalous. Scandalous. Oh, the trade unions were up in arms. Unison hotline was burning. Everybody was, oh, rampant. Why should the workers who only worked a twelfth of the time of the others get the same pay? What's going on? These had worked during the scorching heat of the day, these other uh, boys had only turned up and worked in the cool of the twilight. Blinking. Injustice, I tell you, scandal, not fair. You can hear them, can't you? It's not fair. Jesus brings the parable to a close and he encourages his listeners to see the situation from a bit of a different perspective. Look what he does? Verses 13 through 16. He replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. The master points out that the workers who'd worked all day got exactly what they were promised. Generous wage for their work. They'd not been cheated in any way. They only felt like they'd been cheated when they saw what the others received. Fact. That's what's going on here. But the guy who owned a vineyard and whose money was going to pay the workers had the right to decide how much each worker will get. And his choice was to make all of the workers equal, regardless of how much they'd work. And it kicks off. Scandalous. And it was. And this parable is therefore used by Jesus to teach us something very, very important about the grace of God. As Yancy rightly says, it is scandalous. The grace of God is scandalous. Why? It's scandalous because, first of all, Grace gives us what we need, not what we deserve. It's very important we get our heads around this. It gives us what we need, not what we deserve. The first group of workers were focused on what they thought they deserved. We've worked 12 hours in these fields. This lot and these numpties here have only turned up for an hour. They don't deserve what we get. Even the workers who'd only worked a part of the day, from three hours to nine hours, well, they all figured that each one deserved more than the next one. But the landowner, of course, in the parable, who represents God, wasn't focused on what these workers deserved. He focused on what they needed. And that's the key. Because all the workers had the same need. They all needed money to support their family for that day. And that's exactly what one denarius provided for every one of those workers. So that's what the landowner provided for each worker with no regard for what they'd done or what they deserved. And that's grace, isn't it? That's exactly how God's grace works because everyone doesn't deserve God's grace, do they? No way. Hmm. From our perspective, it seems like some people deserve it more than others. The truth is, the truth is, no one deserves God's grace. Not even good Baptists like some of you. No. But everybody needs it. There's not a person in the world that doesn't need it. So Jesus has made that grace equally available to every single one of us by laying his life down to purchase that grace on our behalf. It costs us nothing, but it cost him everything. Oh, we don't deserve it. It is not fair. Hallelujah. Do you see it? In light of our culture, this idea that grace gives us what we need rather than what we deserve is an absolute flipping scandal. It flies in the face of conventional thinking in our culture. Our culture is all about bigging us up, isn't it? It tells us how much we deserve things. You don't believe me? What's that advert? L'Oreal, because you're worth it. You can work hard all day. De- we all know that chocolate is good for you. It is. And if you've been working hard, Kit Kat have got it right. You need to take a break. Have a Kit Kat. You deserve it. And they're just two little quaint examples of the way our culture is wired. We big ourselves up. Grace. The scandalous nature of God's grace is that we don't deserve it. And if we can't stop and pause and be grateful and thankful for what God has given us, rather than thinking we deserve it or we've earned it, well, we're going to be in trouble. And for parents today, this is a constant struggle because children in the environment in which they grow up continually think that they well, they deserve to have things. They have earned it. They're worth it. And yet we are promoting a gospel message that says you don't deserve God's love, God's forgiveness. And yet, on a cross outside a city wall, Jesus hung, bled, and died for you. Well, it's not fair. It's scandalous. But that's amazing grace. That's the grace that you and I have. It gives us what we need, not what we deserve. And then you notice the second thing. Grace makes us all equal. There are articles in the newspaper now and again that talk about non-competitive sports. Have you seen these things? i don't know maybe i'm going to say something very controversial now i i I don't live in a world that is uncompetitive i live in a world where there is competition and there are winners and there are losers i think i understand what the schools are trying to do sometimes but if we shield our kids and our grandkids too much from the reality of the world in which we live, what will that do to them? We live in a world where there's only one person who finishes first, and correspondingly, there's only one person who finishes last. And I used to enjoy finishing last in the 800 meters, so there we are. <laughs> That's a fact of life, isn't it? Fact of life is that there are winners. And there are losers. And we talk a lot today about equal rights and things. But I think we'd all agree that equality has got some qualifiers. I mean, for instance, employees should should receive equal pay based on equal work. But the truth is some work is deemed, rightly or wrongly, to have more value or more worth than other work. So not all work is paid equally. But the point is this. The economy of God's kingdom works very different. You notice, for instance, that the complaint of the first group of workers in verse 12 was that the landowner had made only those who'd worked one hour equal to those who'd worked 12 hours. The problem is that the first group of workers weren't satisfied with being equal with the others. They thought they deserved to be paid more than the others. And as a result, they grumbled and they whinged and they complained. Good Baptists. And there are two really, really important spiritual implications that we must draw out from that. Because grace makes us equal. God's grace is made available equally to all. Just because I stand up here, I don't get it more than you. And just because you sit there, doesn't mean you get it more than somebody outside this building. We need to remember that it is scandalous that God's grace is made available equally to all. God doesn't discriminate based on gender, race, social status, or any other factor. Everybody has an equal opportunity to obtain eternal life because it's given as a result of God working by grace. It's not based on ability, it's not based on performance in any way, shape, or form. So can a drug addict receive grace? Absolutely. Can a single mother receive God's grace? Absolutely. Can a divorcee receive God's grace? Absolutely. God's grace is available equally. Secondly, those who have accepted God's grace are all equal in the eyes of God. In God's eyes, there are no separate classes of Jesus followers. We've all got equal standing. I know we think as Baptists we're better than everybody else, and you know, we might be right. The truth is we're probably not. We're the same. And if you're a pastor, if you're a deacon, if you arrange the flowers, if you clean the floors, if you paint the lines in the car park, you know, we are the same. We're all equal. No hierarchical structure in that sense. God's grace is scandalous because it gives us what we need, not what we deserve, because it makes us equal, and finally it's scandalous, because grace is its own reward. That's so important. Remember earlier I said I'd come back to Jesus' answer to Peter and the other disciples, when they basically asked Jesus what reward they were going to get for sticking with him when everybody else was turning away? Well, we find the answer near the end of Matthew 19. If you've got a Bible, turn to verse 27. Here it is, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So we see there, there's clearly a future reward. That's what Jesus is making very clear. Future reward for the disciples. One day, Jesus will put them in positions of authority. They'll judge the 12 tribes of of Israel. But what perhaps is less apparent in Matthew's account of this parable is another reward as well. And in order to see that more clearly, we need to look at Mark's account. Would be Mark, wouldn't it? Much clearer, you see. Mark's account of the same event. If you turn to Mark chapter 10, here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, (laughs) interesting, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's clear, isn't it? As you get a harmony of the Gospels, you see there are two rewards that the disciples and the followers of Jesus are going to receive. One is future in the age to come, but one is now. In this time, a hundredfold return on their investment in the kingdom. I don't think Jesus is actually saying here for one minute that they will literally receive a hundred times more relatives and houses than they currently have. One mother-in-law is quite enough for me, thank you, Lord. But in light of the parable, which Jesus tells immediately after those words, what we can conclude is that we have a generous master, don't we? Who's not sitting here tonight blessed? Every single one of us is so blessed. So blessed in our lives, seriously. So, so blessed. We have a generous master who doesn't wait until the end of the day to reward us. He'll reward you tomorrow morning. He'll reward you at eleven o'clock tomorrow. He'll reward you at five past eleven tomorrow. He is so generous. When's the last time we paused to say thank you? Or oh, see, we deserve it. Do you? Good luck, you don't deserve a thing, neither do I. That's why grace is scandalous. That first group of workers, hmm, they had a reward that was the same as the last group of workers, but they also got a reward that the last group didn't get because they got to work side by side in the vineyard with a generous master all day long. At the end of the day, though, they robbed themselves of the joy of that experience by focusing solely on what they got paid. Complaining because they were comparing it to what everybody else received. Grace is scandalous. It violates the norms of culture. For most people, the main reward we receive for our work is the paycheck we receive at the end of the month. But when it comes to God's grace, my friends... Living under that grace is its own reward. When we live in a grace-based relationship with Jesus, you don't have to wait to die and go to heaven to get your reward. We experience it now. We experience it every day. And that's why the most joyful people I know are those who are in a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ, who work alongside him day by day to serve the needs of other people. work is not always easy sometimes they have terrific burdens to work through but there is blessing and reward day by day in your labors in your relationships in the things that you do grace is scandalous it gives us what we need not what we deserve it makes us all equal and it's its own reward so It's amazing, isn't it? And I pray that tomorrow morning, when that alarm goes off for some of us, and you retired folk, you're wondering whether to watch daybreak or breakfast news, I hope you'll just bask for a moment in God's grace and realize how generous he is. It's not fair. Oh, it's not fair. Hallelujah. It's not fair. Amen.